0: From the studio of kpsu portland and in association with the department of history at portland state university this is beyond footnotes join us as we explore public local and world history through discussions with professors authors and fellow students and alumni today we have the pleasure of interviewing professor Schechter, a specialist in women's history public history transnationalism and world history we're going to focus on the Get It on Paper exhibit, which was located in the Multnomah County Library last spring, and it celebrated the 20th anniversary of the Street Roots newspaper. Professor Schechter, the coordinator of the project, received her PhD from Princeton University and is now a professor at Portland State University. Professor, welcome to the show and thank you for joining us. Good morning. It's great to be here.
1: Would you mind starting by telling us how you became interested in history? Sure. Well, I, I think it has something to do with growing up as the child of immigrants or first-and-a-half generation, as I like to say, uh, in, in downstate New York in the in the 60s and 70s. Uh, my mother is an immigrant from Spain, and my dad is the child of turn-of-the-century, turn-of-the-20th-century European immigrants. and. So my people just got here as far as I'm concerned, and I, I think that growing up, I grew up in lower Westchester County, uh, New York, and sang a lot of songs in school that were hard for me to place in terms of my family history and my family's stories, and and I think one in particular was John Brown's Body. <laughs> and i just remember you know singing these songs uh, like john brown's body lies a moulder in the grave but his truth goes marching on i'm like well who is john brown <laughs> <laughs> and what is this what truth is marching on and and where am i essentially where am i so i think being a historian has been very much an exploration of of how i got here and how we all got here and <laughs> what it all means and and in some ways what are the songs we sing and the stories we tell about, about belonging, about place, about family, um, and about, of course, politics, which, which that song is also about. It's about the challenges to slavery and the fights, uh, many fights, including Civil War, fought to end slavery uh, in part. And um, so, yeah, so that's a pretty, as a, a good little one, <laughs> one minute version of why I became a historian.
2: <laughs> Excellent, well, uh, can we begin by explaining the term public history for our listeners at home? Sure. Uh, Public history
1: refers to storytelling or exhibits or or anything that's really produced with an idea of a general audience and and often Portland State students insist, I think rightly, that it be free. Mm -hmm. You know, we live in a market-driven society and, and access to almost anything, unfortunately, including education. Uh, higher education, especially, costs money, and I think there's a very strong impulse in the practices and institutions of of public history, and I, by which I mean, you know, museums and exhibits and monuments and walking tours and all of it, is that it be free, and um, and that is sometimes difficult to do because it takes resources to do preservation, to to collect and make make understandable, make legible, if you will, the the pieces of the past that come to us, you know, sometimes they just come to us in green garbage bags. You know, sometimes it comes to us in all kinds of uh, messy ways, right, and broken ways. And so what we do as historians is we try to put those pe- pieces back together. But, you know, historians have to eat. <laughs> we all have to eat. But I think a really important part of public history is that it be free and, and created with the intention of, of a wide audience. Yeah, so that's my definition.
0: So what kind of, what goes into projects like the Street Roots exhibit? I mean, what kind of work and research do you have to do to put on such an important exhibit, especially for the Portland community?
1: Wonderful question. Um, I think the two things that were especially powerful in the Street Roots exhibit was a the vision of the organization itself that it that it knew it had an important story to tell. and that like many nonprofits um, and public you know public minded um, organizations, they had very little um, capacity. You know, extra people and extra money to to tell their story uh, and retell their story. So, but but the leadership and the organization as a whole understood that they have a really important story to tell. In fact, St- Street Roots in, is in some ways, as a newspaper, um, is a story machine. Now, these these are folks who really understand the power of storytelling. That's that's the first thing that's really fabulous about this project. And I think the second thing is we had a very committed. Additional partner in the project, which was the Multnomah County Public Library, um, especially the central branch, the curator of the Collins um, Gallery, Rachel Short, and the whole staff there, not only do they take their public mission, right, to make you know to make information and literature and ideas widely accessible but they have a special relationship to the vendors at street roots the people who sell the newspaper and the people and the writers as well they they are proud holders of a complete set (laughs) of street roots in their collection and i think they defend mightily um their their mission right their mission to again be free be accessible and to lift up and preserve the stories and history of the community. So I think those those two things were, were essential in, in bringing the Street Roots Project forward and to fruition.
2: That's awesome. Uh, how do public histories benefit the community? Clearly they're super important to have uh, exhibits like this and such.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's. Um, I think they benefit in many ways. I mean, it's my belief. This is kind of a, a premise of my uh, of my practice as a professional, but also as my founding little anecdote <laughs> at the top of the hour indicated. I believe that there's a deep hunger for history in in humanity, <laughs> in all of us, and I think that in in young people, I think it's very. You know, I think it's very palpable to me. But also across the age spectrum, people are hungry for stories. Humans love stories. Um, we are story machines in some ways. So um, what I tell my students um, is you know, his, the practice of history, the discipline of history gives you the tools and the confidence and the ability to preserve and tell stories and interpret stories. And if you don't do that work, either, either your story won't be told <laughs> or it's going to be told by someone else in a way that you may not like. Or we may be stuck with, you know, plastic and sugar, which is the general <laughs> diet of, you know, our, our general culture. So if you're sick of plastic and sugar and you want you know to make sure your story is told and that you can interpret the other stories that are around you that is the that is the gift of of historical thinking and historical practice and um though it takes resources we do it all the time we do it anyway <laughs> so we have a we have a wonderful mission to um, to share and spread, if you will.
0: Now, unfortunately for our audience, the Street Roots exhibit ended last spring. Um, I had the privilege to be able to go. It was a beautiful exhibit, very well done. Would you mind giving our listeners some background on the Street Roots newspaper and the overall project?
1: Sure. In the spring of 2018, uh, Street Roots. Uh, underwent the organization underwent a leadership change and the not founding editor but but the editor who had brought it to um, the executive director rather who had brought street roots to its sort of full strength if you will made it a daily um, actually or, excuse me a weekly Israel Bayer retired stepped down and a new executive director was installed a woman named Kaya Sand And she um, has a long history in Portland and um, actually wrote for the paper when she was a young person and is a very accomplished artist and poet. And it's very history minded. She was the first artist in residence at the City of Portland Archives a few years ago. And um, Kaya came in both, I think, needing and wanting to lift up the history of Street Roots. It was a kind of a Anniversary moment. She was looking at their 20th um, anniversary uh, coming up in 2019. So for her, it was, as you know, it was a very obvious gesture to say, let's take stock, let's retell our story, and let's gather up our story and make sure we have it right at our fingertips. And I think this is, um, again, something we struggle with as Americans, as individuals, as families, as institutions. Our, you know, we're so future oriented that the past, no one has time for the past, but in some ways we don't know how to steer toward the future because we lose track of our own past. So she was very excited and committed to getting the material of the Archives of Street Roots organized and making sure that that material would be accessible and help to empower herself as a new leader, but also her young staff, all the vendors, everyone involved in the Street Roots project. Can be stre- She understood intuitively that they, their their work would be strengthened by having their own story just at their fingertips. So she put out a call um, to the community for interns to help with the material basis of their archives to get it organized. As, as in most organizations I've worked with for 25 years in town, there were a lot of piles in the basement of paper <laughs> <laughs> called the archives, and they needed some attention. So she was looking for help in essentially building building the backbone of her collection and then figuring out a way to tell the story. So we found, um, she found a couple of community partners to help her. The City of Portland helped with um, just organizing and processing the collection. And then our public history students, I found a couple of intrepid, one history major and one history graduate student who were willing to Essentially build a kind of basic database um, around the around the series of newspapers around essentially twenty plus years of street routes. And so, wow. yeah. So we offered some credit to some two students and sort of built the the outlines, if you will, of of an archive for the organization.
2: Awesome. And so what was your role within this project? And uh, what was the role of the students who worked on that project?
1: Yeah. um, Let's see. I I felt that I was mostly the coordinator, but I also did some processing and some database building myself. So everybody kind of had multiple roles. And let's see. We we, we tried to find people to help. <laughs> that was amazing. We knew it was too big. We, you, basically, we walked into the basement and saw a pile of paper that was taller than our heads.
0: Oh my gosh. You know,
1: you know, it's a mountain. It was really, it was literally, I don't know if maybe went by my office a couple of years ago. I used to have pictures of the pile of newspapers on my office door because that's how history is made, right? <laughs> From piles of paper. And so we needed help sorting it out. So again, the City Archives came to our rescue, but I also wanted to partner with um, the School of Art and Design. I mean, so art is so important to the Street Roots operation. Um, poetry, the creative world is very much a part of their – how they tell stories and how I think the vendors – you know, kind of heal and build community. So we found uh, the School of Art and Design has something called a Social Practice Arts MFA, and actually, it's in the undergraduate program as well. So I put out a little sort of feeler to art and design, and sure enough, a couple of artists show up and decide that <laughs> they want to use the newspapers as an installation um, at PICA. Um, over on the east side, that became a beautiful kind of commentary on gentrification. Part of an installation that was a commentary on gentrification and poverty in northeast. Well, I mean Portland in general, but particularly northeast Portland. So I guess my job was mostly just to find people to help, find people with with vision and curiosity and 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 um, a kind of a kind of commitment to to preserving the fragile stories of fragile members of our communities, because our street roots vendors and writers are homeless or formerly homeless, or in other ways, kind of economically fragile folks. And um, their, their materials are very precious and one of a kind, so they needed, you needed to sort of grasp that And if you're going to jump in and help. And luckily, we had wonderful people to help. When you got
0: involved with the project, I mean, you just described this mountain of paper, which is unsurprising. <laughs> um, was it daunting at all? You must have known that it would have taken a lot of time to sort through and catalog all this material.
1: Yeah, I, in some ways, though, that's a great question. In some ways, I was less worried about the pile. (laughs) I was much more worried about how to make um, a visually engaging exhibit out of newsprint. Okay, so that I I was and sort of had to be 10 steps ahead. And maybe it's my gender upbringing, my gender socialization, that I'm not afraid of messes. (laughs) I but I want to know what it's going to look like and make it look nice. Right. So that's a bit of my my uh, my backstory, but um, yeah. So the so street roots presented a very interesting aspect of what all public historians have to deal with in the in the exhibit world, which is, you know, you you have a story to tell, but somebody gives you objects, and the primary way we experience sort of museums and exhibits and monuments is it's almost like a choreography. It's it's a it's visceral, it's physical. You're walking you're doing a little bit of reading, but you're mostly kind of marveling through glass, right? So how do you build an exhibit I mean, and marveling through glass is not maybe the best way to learn history, okay? But it was the template we were given because we were using the Collins Gallery at Multnomah County Public Library. And they have a beautiful gallery, but it's fairly traditional. So no screens, nothing flashing, no music, <laughs> no nothing to touch. You know, some museums now, there's a lot of tactile and interactive. So we that we, none of that was happening in the Collins Gallery. So I knew I had 12 very traditional vitrines or glass case. So how am I going to make newsprint come be be you, something that people want to marvel through glass at? <laughs> <laughs> now that's that and, and that's a very important question because even when you have sort of cooler objects, if you will, it, that doesn't mean that the, that people are going to learn history by marveling at cool objects. So it just opens up a whole interesting question about visual learning, about how we mark, meaning in our society. So that was what that was where my brain went first. So that was a little daunting. And it was extra daunting, because remember, we're in the digital age now. So not only did I have no screens to have kids fiddling around with or, or adults fiddling around with, but I um, I didn't have any objects at all. All I had was a lot of black and white newsprint. And Again, in the digital age, one of the casualties, frankly, of digitization has been the old the old newspaper that every quote unquote everybody reads. So, of course, big big newspapers have, have folded. Um, the the you know the mainstream media is, has been in a in something of a crisis. And so, if, so when I Googled newspaper exhibits, <laughs> it was all this funereal, you know, depressing stories basically about the end of the newspaper. OK, there's even a national museum of the newspaper and print media in Washington, D.C. But of course, they've jazzed it all up with digital. So, you know, so I had a slightly more upbeat tone. But so please don't Google newspaper exhibits because they're very depressing. They're very funereal. (laughs) So those were the kinds of things that I was that I was concerned about. And um, so how to make newsprint visually compelling and how to build something that people could learn from and be inspired by, even though I didn't have a lot of objects. I had mostly text. So, I, just the spoiler alert is the way we we the way we around this was we really listened carefully to our community partners and they really wanted an exhibit to inspire action, not funereal boo hoo the newspaper <laughs> has had better days or and they didn't want it to be um, you know kind of um, a kind of objectification of of poor folks, right? They didn't want it to be sort of quote unquote sad in that sense, you know that um, you know that this was sort of like some sort of space of pity or something. They didn't want that at all. They had a very positive, get involved, get engaged. Um, that Street which is active and vibrant and a doing organization. So, basically, just really quickly, we solved that. So we we met that visual challenge in two ways. Is one is we spent a long time, actually sitting with the staff and sitting with vendors and thinking and hearing the words that they use to talk about what they do. So, because we, we wanted each of the 12 um, display cases to have like an action word. So we wanted to guide <laughs> the viewer. You know, we didn't want them, we wanted them to draw some of their own conclusions, but we also wanted, we had a particular set of themes we wanted them to, to deal with, and like think, do, bridge, read, um, narrate, create, you know, these action words, these wonderful action: believe, faith, hope, love. Um, So we had action words that kind of organized each vitrine. And then the other thing was to have an individual's story, a a biographical component to each vitrine. So it wasn't just a theme, but a person. It was both. And, of course, again, we're back to stories and personal stories and the ways that those are compelling almost by definition. And, again, the good news about Street Roots, they didn't have a lot of objects. They had some, which were quite charming, some posters and some... Other kinds of ephemera that were very colorful, but not a lot, as you, as you probably recall from seeing it, but they have wonderful stories and wonderful people. So it was in, a, in a sense, it became very easy to lift up individual stories and, and tell them in a very concise and vivid manner to bring the organization and what it does to life.
0: So you said that you had a uh, history major undergraduate and graduate student helped you. Yes. And was there anyone else who really played a key role in the project besides the
1: three of you? Um, yeah. I mean, I have to give another shout out to, um, to the Multnomah County Public Library and Rachel Short. They they had something that I've never had or haven't had in a very long time. They had a budget. <laughs> <laughs> And they were willing to um, uh, invest in very durable, uh, a very durable installation that can have many lives afterward. That's the other thing about some kinds of exhibits and public history activities: is they hate to the have it to be just a one-off um, and go back into mothballs. But that was not the case with this project. Um, Multnomah County Public Library w- helped us. Um, digitize some big pages of the newspaper and build out some text that, and print them on panels um, that could be reused. So they, they had a budget that allowed us to do to manipulate the newsprint in a way that was visually compelling. Otherwise, it's just a lot of standing around reading, you know, black-and-white <laughs> text. Mm-hmm. Um, and and also in a way that um, can be reused, <laughs> which is environmentally and, you know, sort of culturally appropriate. So, since the ex- installation in um, to the spring of March of 2019, it's been installed in two other locations and it's kind of like pop beads. You can use as many or as few as you need or have room for. So that was, um, that was really, really exciting to be able to have the story be retold and redeployed, if you will, in different settings.
2: So when you you mentioned this, you know, pile of newspapers, these piles of papers. Right. How, how long did it take you to sort through all of that? Well, I true confessions, I didn't do it. I sort
1: of wanted to do it cuz I, <laughs> I wanted to have the I want my students to have the experience, but um but because the city of Portland and then Street Roots own internship program really rallied, um it took them a summer. Short version is they took them it took them a summer. And I, I didn't have to do it. So like next time I walked into the collection, it was all in boxes with dates on it and file folders and on shelves. So it was awesome. <laughs> it was really <laughs> terrific. But I think it really did take them an entire summer. So, you know, eight, ten weeks wow. of work. Yeah. And, you know, they had to any any retention Plan is also a destruction plan, so they actually had to destroy a lot of you know duplicates and stuff, and it was really funny because the city of Ar- the city of Portland said you know keep two copies of each newspaper, <laughs> and Street View said no, we're keeping seven. <laughs> I think the number is seven or maybe eleven, like some astronomically large wow. from the from the from the archival management standpoint. A very ge- overly generous, right? Uh, supply, shall we say? Because you have one is a copy that you're going to eventually scan, and then one is a you know so that's a reading copy, and then one is a preservation copy. That's sort of the maximum you would need. Newsprint does not save, does not preserve particularly well. It's bulky and it's messy. It's you know sticky. It has ink on it. But yeah, so that was that was pretty charming. I found it very charming. That, uh, that, of course, the paper wants to hold on to, to many more copies than the archivist. But I didn't have to, I didn't have to navigate that one. I let, I let uh, the city of Portland be the heavy on that.
0: <laughs> Could you describe for our audience the impact of street routes
1: in the Portland
0: community itself?
1: Yes, um, I hope I can do it justice. Um, I mean, I'm sure
0: our viewers who live in the city have seen street routes around. It's hard to walk around the city and not see street routes.
1: It is hard, although I can I can tell you many, many people, when I told them I was working on this, were like, "What street routes again? Am I sort of, it's dimmer than, I mean, I think maybe at Portland State, we feel, you know, we're kind of really rooted downtown, but the people passing through downtown, I'm not sure they, I think they see street routes, but they really don't know what it is. So there's that name recognition, but not the depth. So just really quickly. I think the impact, I would describe the impact of Street Roots in two ways. One is for 20 years, they have provided an income earning uh, opportunity for approximately 100 a month, about 100 vendors work for Street Roots every month selling newspapers. Um, so that is that is hugely significant. Um, they uh, are a clearinghouse for people who are in a tough place in their lives to find a job, <laughs> to find support, to find encouragement, to find resources. The Street Roots office on Northwest Davis also provides space for meetings, for support groups, and most importantly for the newspaper, for a writer's group. I mean, essentially, Street Roots is a writer's group at core. It's beating heart is a Wednesday morning kitchen table writing group. And that writing group has, you know, changed lives. And And then the, the writing that they do, and then the reporters or the staff do, um, creates a newspaper that also helps change lives. So, I do the math, but they do a beautiful annual report every year, but you know, literally hundreds of thousands of people have found help, have found income, have found encouragement, have found healing, and also a political voice. That's really Israel Bayer's legacy, I found a political voice to make change in our community. And I think the, the most recent success of Street Roots politically is the big housing bond that was passed in the spring of 2018, they were a key part of that coalition. And I think again the reason why they've been so successful politically I would say is the second thing they've contributed which is in the meltdown of the major corporate media and in the disruption of digital technology Street Roots has emerged I believe as the conscience the voice of conscience of the Portland metro area that is once the big the big Entities melt down and then everybody scatters into these little digital pods, right, of whatever Twitter feed they're following. It's really Street Roots, which the reporters, the vendors, the staff who are on the street every day, dealing with the city, telling the the city's stories, um, encountering one another, encountering people across class, across neighborhoods, and that... Voice and those voices have filled a, a, a terrible void left by um, the retraction of other forms of civil discourse. Of course, that's even by. I'm talking now about print media, but also <laughs> in the wake of Trump, when civil discourse um, has is very embattled and polarized. Um, I I truly believe that the kind of storytelling and um, and reporting that Street Roots does has filled a, a really needed space. It's been the conscience, I believe, of our community.
2: What did the community think of this exhibit? What was the reaction? Well, that's a that's a wonderful question. And, you know,
1: that's one public historian should, should ask more often because we're often at the front end.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> we're often at the create end. And frequently, our shop here at Portland State, we're often helping another organization tell its story so that, it's the hosting organization that worries about, you know, does everybody have a uh, does everybody come to the in- opening and how many people can fit in the room and, and stuff like that. So we, we often build things that we don't end up um, being sort of in charge of. We sort of go home and hope for the best with our community <laughs> Party, I'm saying I'm saying it in a little bit of a lighthearted way. Mm-hmm. So I should know more about this, but it's funny how our practice is structured. We're kind of the content team. And we're less about um, the audience management side, although there is a literature and there is sort of um, professional wisdom on on that as well. But the short answer to your the shorter answer to your question is, the opening was packed, <laughs> absolutely packed, on a beautiful Sunday afternoon in March six, I believe was our opening last spring, and that was that was very gratifying. We were we did get a few bounces in the media. The Mercury picked it up, and Port PSU Vanguard also. Um, Picked it up and um, they held a beautiful poetry. They released a book of poetry. Street Roots released a book of poetry in April, April's Poetry Month in the US. And they had an extremely well attended reading in the exhibit, in the room with the exhibit, which made it very, very powerful. And the fact that the organization wanted it to come to be reinstalled several times. I, I sat at their street fair this this summer with my son as we had all the panels in the street, literally, just uh, for people to look at and read. So I think I – think in gen- and then the library staff was extremely happy. They felt people were taking their time and really reading the text and reading the old copies of the paper. So I think on balance, it was a big success. But one of the sweetest things for me personally was – and this is, this is an anecdote that really proves my point about all the work PSU has done with community partners, which is how difficult it is for them to just even give their own staff, uh, how organizations struggle to give their own staff um, a sense of their history. <laughs> and so I remember when the exhibit was up that, that Kaya Sand w- said that a little piece when she said, I, I go to the exhibit myself and I walk around and I I read and I absorb the stories and the images and I look at the objects and I feel strengthened. I feel inspired to do the work that we do. So even for the people on the inside, um, it can be extremely nourishing and extremely affirming to see these stories. cherished and preserved and lifted up for our community. So to me, that was a very special part of, of the exhibit and, and doing the project.
0: That's really amazing. I really found this project to be really beautiful. It was my first interaction with public history. as May and I are both medievalists. <laughs> so the people we study have been gone for a very, very long time. But to interact with and view an exhibit that's so deeply rooted in the community was a really rewarding experience. And my next question kind of has to do with, does the history department at PSU have enough resources to do more of these projects? I know Portland State does have a public outreach program, but can we expect to see more public
1: history projects in the future? I sure hope so. Um, There is no shortage of stories that need telling, whether they're from the medieval period or from the present. Stories about the medieval period are still sloshing around inside us today. (laughs) And so I think that's, we can talk more about that (laughs) offline. Um, But um, so short version, yes. Uh, Long version, you know, it, it remains challenging to... To, to know where to put the few resources that we have and I think what the history department one of the questions for the history department from my point of view I'm going to go there mm-hmm. is you know how do how do we really prepare students to deal with the digital environment as as serious and committed humanists so I mean I'm so thrilled that you all um are doing this podcast and that represents quite a leap forward from us and i think radio radio is one of those things that is going to survive like the book the book has survived the book has pretty much survived and perhaps is even doing better you know since the digital invasion if you will and i think radio is you know the human voice there's something just incomparable about the human voice, so so radio's gonna hang in there. it's cheap, it's green, it's fabulous. <laughs> um, but there's a lot of other stuff out there, and I, I think our department is still still thinking about, I'll put it that way, how do we prepare students for to as humanists, as serious humanists, as serious social scientists to engage in the best way possible with the digital capacities that are out there? So, I think until we answer that question, at least for the moderate term, you know, it, there's, a, there's just a lot of other questions uh, about where we go with public history. Because the demand is there, I think, for stories and for interpretation and for content, if you will. Yet we haven't quite charted where we want to be in 2025 or 2030 with our public history program, but I look forward to, I look forward to those conversations with students and, you know, community partners and of course, colleagues. So I'm very optimistic.
2: And so how can a student get involved in the sphere of public history? Well, great question, Esme. (laughs) Um, You know,
1: there's almost um, no wrong way to get involved in public history but it sure couldn't hurt to sign up for one of our public history classes. (laughs) And uh, we offer public history, you know, every quarter. And in the fall, we tend to offer the intro. So if you want to kind of get ahead of steam up before you put your toe into a podcast or something around oral history or even collecting documents, you might want to do that. But there's also a DIY, a wonderfully DIY part of public history, which is most people that i bump into students or colleagues in the community or friends they're already doing history and that's why they come to you and they say what can i do because they're they've already got something so my thing about public history with students is start with where you are um what have you got what do you what do you can what are you interested in who are you talking to and um, you know, start start interviewing relatives. Start collecting up old photographs and labeling them, <laughs> but not with a ballpoint pen, please. Very important. <laughs> or find make a labeling system. Um, you know, rummage around in your in your parents and grandparents and cousins. Uh, you know, photo albums and you know attics, so that when you come to class, you already have something that you're that you can test your ideas on that you can work with digitization, um, that you can think about, you know, your own archive. I think where technology is going is we're all going to be our own, you know, with, with uh, what is it called, a uh, blockchain technologies, you know, we're all going to sort of be our own bank <laughs> of knowledge. And to be ready for that as humanists is, is a very exciting, it's a very exciting prospect. But sign up for class too. (laughs) Yes.
0: I actually heard something very sad the other day. I was talking to one of my friends who's in a different major, and they said, you know, with how digital the world is, what's the point of majoring in history if I can just Google something? And that kind of broke my heart, but it's a growing trend in the United States. Recent statistics are showing that the number of history majors is declining. I know The Time released an article and a study on it. Do you think that interactive and relevant projects like the Street Roots project will be able to draw more people into the
1: field? Yeah, I I do because I think the tactile and again the, the human voice component of um, engaged historical practice is transformative. And I'm not I, you know, I don't know necessarily that because there's more reference materials around, that that means there's fewer history majors. I, I don't draw that I don't put an equal sign against those two. I think there are more reference materials around, and people are using them a lot, because they're hungry for history. Okay. And if we can empower people to be their own historian or to create spaces and connections that allow them to create history projects together that are outward facing, we're we're in good shape because again, the book has come through the digital revolution just fine. And you know, the book is still kind of the technology of choice for most humanists. And the book is strong. So I'm not, I'm not worried. I, I'm certainly worried about fewer history majors. That's for sure. Um, but I'm not worried that the hunger for reference that, because <laughs> that's what people are doing. They're looking stuff up mm-hmm. because connections can be easily made in that environment. I don't think that means equal sign. Fewer people want to do history or have a tactile or human um, uh, dialogic approach to history. I, I, I don't believe that. Now, I may be I may be somewhat um, in a minority right now, but that's only because the that equal sign between m- digital reference materials and and fewer history majors is is being asserted. I don't believe it's been shown, really demonstrated. I think it's asserted. It's pro- it's a provocation, <laughs> and I accept that provocation as a challenge.
2: Uh, so I, I love this idea you mentioned of you know being your own archive, being your own uh, source of history there. Now, are there any uh, public history projects in the work right now that or that you have on your mind for the future, and do uh, you want to tell us about them?
1: Sure. There are two that I'm really very excited about and very, very committed to. The first has to do with supporting the efforts of the um, Gordley Birch family to create um, a community center in northeast Portland, out of the family home of Ms. Faye Birch and Ms. Avell Gordley, who are. Um, leading um, figures in the African American community, highly accomplished women in the fields of business and public service I had the honor of working with Avell Gordley on her memoir that was published uh, in 2011 by Oregon State University Press. And the family is is rallying to um, preserve the family home on North Williams Avenue, and we're making pretty good progress, I would say, with uh, making sure that that project comes to fruition and remains a resource, a very vibrant and dynamic resource in the community. Um, So toward that end, I've been just helping... um, work with them and their board to make sure they have the resources they need to make the arguments to the city and to funders and to other people to help you know establish the resources for the center. And then there's a lot of interest in having that center be actually kind of a history workshop, if you will, for members of the community to do memory projects, to do sort of capacity building, memory um, historical uh, memorialization. And education. So I'm very excited about that. So I'm teaching a course this winter called um, Well, it's Public History Seminar, but the focus is on um, African American house museums and community museums, and we're reading a a big liter a lot of literature on how everything from, you know, storefront religious organizations to the National Mall in Washington, where how black history is sort of unfolded in the public, in the public realm. So that's one project and a plug for my shameless plug for my class, <laughs> and then um, and then the other project is very close to home at Portland State. I've been um, serving the last year and a half as interim director for a program in the college called Conflict Resolution, which is sort of peace studies. Uh, in, in people might recognize it more as a as that in that way. And one of the, they're coming up on a 20th anniversary, Peace Studies and Conflict Res has been around for about 20 plus years in its very early foundings in the 90s. And it's time to tell, every time there's a birthday party, call the historians, right? (laughs) When there's an anniversary, that's when we get to do our thing. So we're in the process of uh, just a very early stages of pulling together the founding files and Documents around the um, establishment of conflict resolution, which had a lot to do, or at least was involved in, you know, embroiled in at the time, uh, the Iraq War, uh, the Iraq Wars, I should say. So um we're gonna be able to use the founding of conflict resolution. This is my spring term course. That's my five eleven, my four eleven, five eleven for all you students out there. <laughs> Shameless plug. Shameless plug. Um we're gonna be pulling together the story of I call it peace and peace studies at at Portland State, which is what's sort of what we're gonna be circling around to try to, to flesh out. You know what was the anti-war movement like in town at that time? Who, how was the impact on campus? We have a lot of veterans on campus, and and we're involved um, in various ways with with students who serve and 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 staff and others. And then how did the peace studies? You know how did the progressive kind of anti-war, if you will, uh, part of the community get together? So it's going to be a really interesting stew pot of issues to sift. And we're going to probably do some oral history as well. So the, the we're going to do the we'll build the archive in spring term, and then about a year later, we'll do an anniversary celebration um, in spring of 2021. Can you believe it? <laughs> so plenty of time to get a piece of this project. and we're, I mean, we actually wrote a grant for some interns. I'd like to have some paid internships in public history and uh, see what kind again, it's going to be an interesting question of what is the visual what are the visuals again we have files on how departments start or you know reports on activism but how to how to make it visual what what are we really saying here about the learning involved with um with peace and peace studies so it's going to be a new adventure for me
0: (laughs) very very cool well i wish you the best of luck with all your future endeavors and projects thank you christian and before we leave as it is Esme's first interview. Now that she is my new co-host, I am going to leave the time-honored tradition question to her.
2: Uh, And here's that time-honored tradition question. Um, If you could travel back in time, uh, where and when would you go, and why would you go there?
1: Oh, my goodness.
2: (laughs) I forgot about that question you kind of hinted before. Oh, it's very exciting. It's
1: very exciting. Well, I always tease my friends and family that I don't even want five minutes ago. I'm, I want the future some, somehow, but I think that um, 1910, 1912 um, in either London or Paris or New York would have been very, very exciting and, you know, kind of terrifying times as well. There was a lot of labor unrest. There was an explosion of artistic and creative work in, in the arts and poetry um, it was, of course, the high tides in New York of immigration. Um, so New York was, you know, just swirling with popula- new populations, many languages. Uh, and, you know, I guess I on some level feel like Virginia Woolf was right that somewhere along December 1910, the world changed. And I'd love to have been, you know, there and kind of felt that. I mean, I think we're still dealing with the reverberations of the, the changes wrought by essentially the World War I era, but would have been amazing to be part of that. Yeah. Really cool.
0: Well, Professor, thank you again for coming on the show today. It has been our honor and pleasure to interview you, and we look forward to seeing any future public history projects at Portland State.
1: Thank you both so much, and congratulations on all the work you do for the department. We're very grateful. Thank Thank you. you. (laughs) Take care.
0: So, to our audience, I would like to say that public history is a great way for students to get involved with the local communities, and to any students listening, we recommend trying to get involved in these projects. They're very important and a rewarding experience. The final product will also bring a community together and allow them to reflect on their history, which is incredibly important and an experience that I believe everyone can take something away from. As always, thank you for tuning into the show this morning. Beyond Footnotes is produced by students of the PSU Department of History and is recorded in the studio of KPSU. You can find information about this episode on our show page at kpsu.org slash footnotes and on SoundCloud. We are always interested to know what you guys are thinking. We have also been entertaining the idea of a quiz trivia show. So please let us know your thoughts by contacting the Beyond Footnotes team on Facebook, Twitter, or email at beyondfootnotes at gmail.com. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Have a good day.